church, today we will be continuing with our series on humility. Last week we, we kicked off the series and we spent most of our time in Luke chapter 17 from verses 1 to 4 and we focused predominantly on the attitudes or characteristics of humility. As Jesus contrasted the differences between the Pharisees and how they were marked by pride and how he called for the complete opposite from his disciples, a character of humility. So in the scripture, Jesus gives us some of these hallmarks of true humility. The first one we focused on last week is you are to restrain from offending. Humble people restrain themselves from offending others. Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 17 verse 1, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. You see, the Pharisees were very skillful at putting stumbling blocks in front of people to hinder them on their spiritual journey. That's why they were producing, as Jesus said, they were producing sons of hell. They did it by their heresy and by their hypocrisy. But the humble don't do that. The humble don't flaunt their freedoms and their liberties. The humble don't say, well, this is what we teach, and no matter what effect it has on you, we're going we're gonna to stay our course. The humble don't live hypocritical lives that set bad examples. And church, Jesus is calling for the kind of life that leaves no offense, that causes no stumbling blocks, that doesn't seduce people away from the truth into evil. And that's why Jesus gives such a strong warning in verse 2 where he says, It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. And we learned that Jesus was referring to young believers whom the Pharisees were trying to lead astray by spreading lies wherever Jesus would go. They were spreading the lies in the crowds that, that were attracted to Jesus. And you see, humble believers have a responsibility to spiritual integrity for the sake of others to teach what is true and to live what is right. The second thing we covered last week is that humble people are ready to forgive. Humble people are eager to forgive, right? And this readiness to forgive one another, where it says in verse 3 and 4, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you, against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Humble people are known by their eagerness to forgive. They are merciful, they are gracious, they are forgiving. Even when someone offends them seven times in a day. As we've heard elsewhere in Scripture, to forgive people 70 times seven which is simply a way of saying forgiveness without limit. This is, of course, completely contrary to how the Pharisees conducted themselves. They had nothing but disdain for sinners. They wouldn't even go near the riffraff that hung around Jesus. They kept their distance to carry on their, their masquerade of their so-called holiness, and they had no interest in these people. They were not interested in their repentance. They were not interested in offering them grace or mercy. But Jesus says those who are humble are eager to forgive. Even those who repeatedly again and again and again sin against them. 
That's what humble people do. That's what lowly people do. And while they will not purposely lead someone into sin, they are eager and ready to lead them out of it. And last week we went through some of the ways on how to deal with sin in the body of Christ and that it is only by the grace of God that we find ourselves in the position to be able to bring correction and to do that out of love, not by our own works. Amen? So church, this week we will continue with breaking the spirit of pride and focus on the other characteristics of humble people and the emphasis that Jesus places on, on this for our life and for our spiritual growth. The third characteristic is so important. Humble people are to recognize their weakness. They are to recognize their weakness. In Luke chapter 17 verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. They said, Lord, increase our faith. Now, in case you didn't know, the apostles were the 12 men selected by Jesus, where he talked about calling the 12 to himself. To himself. The 12 become the apostles that we all know so well as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are of all people most privileged. They are of all people most honored to be, have been called by the Lord himself into ministry. To be his representative. To be his messenger. To become an eyewitness to the resurrection. And to be, given, to be part of the first generation of preachers. To be given the power over disease and over death and over demons. And to be sent out with this power to substantiate the message of the gospel of the, the kingdom of God. What an immense privilege. And church, they were quite frankly nobodies in life. One of them was a zealot, which means he was an extremist. One of them was a despised tax collector. Some of them were fishermen and the rest of them were craftsmen of some kind of another. They were just nobodies in the eyes of this world. Not rabbis, not Pharisees, not, not scribes, not Sadducees, not even synagogue leaders. They were just 12 ordinary men, 12 ordinary people just like you and me. But you see, they become extraordinarily privileged. They become the foundation of the church. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the Lord builds His church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They become the authors of Scripture. They become the men through whom the Lord writes much of the New Testament. And they were given this kind of power to demonstrate that they truly represented God and they manifest what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of an apostle. They will become, as it says in Scripture, the, the rulers in the kingdom, ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel, and their names will be on the foundation stones of the eternal city, the New Jerusalem. Talk about 12 privileged men. As we know, Judas falls out of the 12 because of his betrayal in, and is replaced by a man called Matthias. These were great men of honor. They had already begun to preach and they had already begun to see the power unleashed through their lives. But as privileged as they were, they were also just human. They were human just like you and me. And in fact, five times in Scripture, Jesus says to them, O ye of little faith. He says, O ye of little faith. And you, you wonder to yourself, how could someone who has had that experience 
walking and being with Jesus, seeing his incredible display of miracles, even performing some of their own, hearing him preach, being taught by him, being discipled by him day after day. I mean, how could they continue to live with such little faith? But they did. And here we are in the last few months before the cross, and their response to what Jesus says in, in verse 1 to 4 is, Lord, increase our faith. And what they're really saying is, Lord, this is a huge leap of faith, what you're asking of us. This is completely contrary to what we've always been taught. This is completely contrary to our natural or emotional instincts. Living with this kind of awareness. Never to teach anything that is in error. But always to rightly represent the truth so no one is harmed or hindered in their spiritual progress. To live your life in such a godly fashion that you never cause another person to see anything in your life that leads them down the path of disobedience or sets a wrong example. Who can live like that? That's such a high standard to live by. And then on top of that, to be so merciful and so gracious that you confront sinners and no matter what they might have done to you, you just continue to try and restore and restore and restore. This is contrary to the normal. And this is contrary to the religious patterns that they've always been taught. And they're essentially saying, Lord, I don't think we can do this. I think this is, this is incapable. We can't do this type of thing. And you're going to have to give us more than we have to be able to live like that. We're going to need more faith to do this. And you see, church, this is where the humble live. The humble live with a sense of their, their own inadequacy. This honesty, this admission and recognition of weakness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul comes to the conclusion that he has now found the secret to power. And he says, Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. The true children of God, the, the true disciples of Jesus Christ are humble. They are humble enough to submit themselves to Scripture and to virtue so that they lead people in the, the direction of holiness. They're humble enough as well to confront sin in someone else's life and to be merciful and forgiving. And they are humble enough to, to know them they are weak themselves. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.29, That's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. Total dependence. He also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. Dependence. And you see, church, the disciples' response to Jesus on setting such an impossible standard is, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, you're calling us to teach the truth, to live holy and to live graciously. And to forgive people who wound us and to do that repeatedly. And that is asking a lot from us. And they're feeling this weight of this, this spiritual accountability. And they're really honest. And they say, Lord, in our weakness, we're admitting this. We need increase. 
And they're not saying that they didn't have any faith at all. They're just saying, who can live like that? And you know, the Apostle Paul had the same feeling. He had the, the same sense in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, where he says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Church, just grab that thought for a moment. You mean you say your life compounds someone's damnation? Or your life and your influence leads to someone's exaltation? That your life can be an aroma from death to death or life to life? Who is adequate for these things, Paul said? Who in themselves, in their humanity, could ever have a life with such a, a massive impact? That's asking a lot. And you know, church, we may think it's only the leaders of, of nations or the great minds of our time that can change things eternally. You know, the powerful people of this world, that's not true. They don't change anything forever. Even the men and women in universities with their ideas and philosophies, ideologies, scientific or technological advance, they don't change anything forever. The real powerful people are in the kingdom of God. Because they are the ones that influence people eternally. Come on. Who is adequate for that? Who is adequate to teach the truth to change lives? Who is adequate to live the truth to set an example of godliness and to make the, the message of transformation believable? Who is adequate to be so gracious and so forgiving as to forgive someone who, who offends them repeatedly on a daily basis and extend nothing to them but grace and a desire for restoration. That's asking a lot. That's why they say, Lord, increase our faith. Well, the Lord understood that question and He agreed with them. So He says in verse 6, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. He says, you're right. You do need a stronger faith. It's the right question. It's a good question. It's, it's absolutely true. If you just had a small amount of faith, you would have enough faith to have a powerful life. Now, church, what's interesting, if you look at the mustard seed, um, firstly, it's a herb, and it's been used in the ancient Middle East for centuries. There were a number of seeds that were used by people to grow plants for food that the, the families ate. And the, the smallest of the seeds in the land of Israel used for food was the mustard seed. And in Matthew chapter 13, verse 23, Jesus refers to it as the smallest, the, the least of the seeds. And the thing that made it so interesting was that as small as it was, as minute as it was, it grew disproportionately. And a mustard bush or tree could be 10 to 50 meters tall to, and in width as well. That's, coming from, that's a lot coming from a tiny little seed like that, right? And so Jesus is simply saying this. If you just had a mustard seed kind of faith, a growing faith, if you just had the kind of faith that grows and gets bigger and expands and develops, you could do some amazing things. And he said you could take this, this mulberry tree, uprooted and plant it in the sea. And you know that 
that they would say that the mulberry tree had roots that would survive up to 600 years. And so to uproot a mulberry tree would be a big thing to do. And then to have it move across the sky and plant itself in the middle of the sea would be even more significant, right? That would be absolutely supernatural. So what is the Lord saying here, church? Is He saying that if you have enough faith that you could, you could actually move a tree? Or that if you have enough faith that you could move a mountain from, from here to there? Well, maybe, but I think that kind of trivializes that, the whole idea here. He's talking metaphorically. He's talking in analogies. They all knew that, knew that. They knew he wasn't talking about moving trees around. The point of Jesus' lesson is simply this. If you will trust me and you will trust in my strength, you will have the power to do what is supernatural. That's which you cannot do humanly. That's what he's talking about. He's saying in a manner of speaking that a small growing faith, a small expanding faith can do inconceivable things. Why? Because when you entrust yourself to the power of God, He does His work through you. The Lord is not saying do pointless things or, or crowd-pleasing tricks. What He's saying in the Scripture is, you don't think you can live a godly life. You don't think you can always teach the truth correctly. You don't think you can set a pure example so that no one stumbles. You're not sure that you can love, live such a, a generous and merciful and forgiving life. You're not sure that you can do all of that, but I'm telling you that when you continue to trust in me, my power through you will accomplish all of that. Come on, isn't that amazing, church? That's what Paul was saying in, in 2 Corinthians 12.10. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Church, Jesus used similar statements in Matthew 17, 20 and Mark eleven twenty three when He spoke about moving things around. And in those cases, He used a mountain as His illustration. But at the end of both of those, He said, here's the point. Nothing shall be impossible to you. Nothing shall be impossible to you. And what is this nothing that he's referring to? Nothing that God wills and nothing that God leads you into will be impossible. And you say you, can't, you don't think you can live like that. Well, the truth is you can't live like that when you trust in your own flesh. And that becomes the basis of the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What it means to walk in the Spirit or to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly to heal the power of God in your life. That's what it's all about. John chapter 14 is a, a very good illustration of this. John 14, 12 says, Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. That's, that's pretty outrageous. You put your trust in me, you put your faith in me, and the works that I do... You will do. What's even more outrageous is when Jesus says, and greater works than these he will do. Church, you will be able to do things that will change people's lives. You will be able to do things that change people's lives eternally. Can we start to receive that? Can we start to believe that? As a people and as a church? 
to impact cities and nations? So what are we saying here this morning? We're saying that the disciples are honest. They're humble enough to say that this is beyond us. That this isn't natural. This is not what we've been taught our whole lives. How in the world are we going to be able to live such lives? And how are we going to be exist by such a high standard? And the answer comes from Jesus. He says, if you just put your trust in me, I will empower you to live that way. And you can go forward boldly to do my will and to do whatever I command you, and I will give you the power to do that. Come on, let's give the Lord a shout of praise just for that. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, we all know this well. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus to all generations forever and forever. Amen. So church, as the church, we come into the world and we are the powerful people. Through us, truth is proclaimed. Through us, godliness is manifest. Through us comes illustrations of power and grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion and sympathy. And God uses all of that as a means by which He works His powerful saving work. The regeneration of man, right? So in our weakness, we are enabled to do these things. So we humbly acknowledge our weakness and trust fully in the Lord's power to enable us to do His will. Amen? Are you guys okay? Final point. Humble disciples are marked by restraint from offense. Readiness to forgive, recognition of weakness, and finally, rejection of honor. Rejection of honor. Now, there's something that you need to know about the Pharisees in case you didn't know it already. They loved to be honored. It was really, really important to them. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 5, it says, But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries. And a phylactery was a little leather box that they carried around of the law. For they brought in their phylacteries and lengthened the tassels of their garments. They just tried to look religious. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. They loved that stuff. They, they loved all that honor. They wanted to be honored. And that's completely contrary to the disciples of Jesus Christ. And church, you know, along with the recognition of weakness and trusting God's power, there comes a danger. As God begins to use you, as you live a life that honors Him, and as you teach His Word faithfully, and as you set an example of a, a true spiritual life, there's a danger that you may begin to think to yourself, that you know what, I'm pretty good at this Christian life. My life is having a profound impact. Through me, somebody came to Christ over here. And through me, somebody came to Christ over there. I'm teaching the truth and, and people are loving that. And my life is, is sort of in order and I'm, I'm glad about that. And I was really nice to those people just the other day. You know, I gave a blanket to someone just last week. And yesterday I gave someone my leftover 
uh, food at the, at the robot. Aren't you impressed, God? And church, it's easy to get to the place where you become arrogant about your spiritual progress. Is there anything uglier than that? Spiritual pride? And is there any greater failure to understand that everything is but by grace? And so Jesus puts the protection on the backside of this whole thing because when you begin to become useful to God and you begin to see these power flow through your life, there's going to be a temptation by your fallen nature to make you feel like you're doing really well. And that God has to be thoroughly impressed with you. And of course the Pharisees, they wanted people to be impressed with them because they really believed that, that Jesus was. So Jesus addresses this with a, a very simple story in Luke chapter 17 from verses 7 to 10. And, and he says this, And which of you, having a servant plying or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will you not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me, till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So give, to give you a bit of a, an illustration this morning, that takes us into the very simple village life where people had slaves. That was how employment was uh, handled, uh, pretty much how it was handled back then. You would hire a slave and hire a servant. They would come and tend your fields, come and tend the sheep, and, and then you come and look after the master's needs. And I know that sounds a bit harsh when you use words like servant or slaves, especially what has happened in, in recent history, but if it was handled properly back then, it was a wonderful thing. It was a good thing. And it's a perfect illustration of the relationship between a believer and God and the believer and Christ. And therefore, in itself, is a pure and wonderful kind of relationship on a spiritual level. And you see, church, the servant understood exactly what the job required. And he understood that his master was not asking more of him than was expected of him to do of what was required by the job. And what was required by the job was you work a long day and you take care of the field. You take care of the sheep and then you come in and then you take care of the master's needs. So everybody knows the answer. It was a rhetorical question. Which of you is going to say to him, come immediately and sit down to eat? Nobody. Because the servant needs to do his duty. The master is not indebted to him for having plowed the field or guarding the sheep. And so everybody knows the answer. He just did what he was supposed to do. It's very quiet in here. You guys okay? I know it's a humbling word. I know. And Jesus applies this in, in verse 10 where he says, So likewise you... When you have done all those things which you, you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do. In other words, church, don't pat yourself on the back and think that God's really impressed and that He owes you some special favor because you'll get your reward in heaven. You see, we're not talking about doing something to please men here. We're talking about assuming somehow that God is in your debt. You don't thank the servant for doing what he's supposed to do. And when you and I have done everything we're supposed to do, 
It doesn't mean that we're now worthy of some special merit as if God is now indebted to us. This is about grace. While we're on this earth, it's about grace. And the fact of the matter is, no matter what we've done and no matter how well we've done it, we've never been able to do what God is truly worthy of. So we are unworthy servants, right? No matter what we've done, we have to say, I am an unworthy servant. Church, this is all about humility. Humble people reject honor. They know that they're not in God's debt. They know that they are still living under grace. You see, church, you were justified by grace. You are being sanctified by grace. You will be glorified by grace and you will be rewarded in heaven forever and forever by grace. Amen? Never do we merit anything God gives us. But I want you to listen to this promise that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 12, verse 37. And I absolutely love this. Jesus says, Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. So when our labors are done, Jesus sits us down at his table and he serves us. Wow. That's more than we could ever have as an expectation. But that's going to happen in heaven. That is part of our eternal reward. But as long as we are here in this life, we can never do what God deserves. And it remains a, a wonder of wonders, as Paul says in, in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, that God has chosen to use me. God has cho chosen to use us who am chief of sinners. The humble never forget that reality. When we serve God, we serve Him in an inferior way. And never do the humble imagine that they have served God so well as to somehow have him impressed Him and twisted His arm to give us some special favor as if He is in our debt and that He owes us. That's just a crazy notion. Church, as I close this morning, Jesus is calling for the kind of life that is just so far away from the, the Pharisaic example. And you and I are called to live this life today. Humble, so that we always submit to Scripture and to doctrine, and practice never then to lead anyone into error or to sin. Humble, so that we always forgive those who sin against us, no matter how many times they stumble. Humble, so that we are always aware of our own weakness and have a growing dependency on the power of God. And humble so that we recognize that even our best attempts, even our best service falls short of the glory of God and we are unworthy servants. We have only done what we should have done and perhaps hardly even that. Humble. Accrediting all God's gift then to His grace on our lives. Church, humble yourself like this and you will clearly demonstrate that you are a true child of God. And one day... One day, church, God will exalt you. The Lord will see you at His table, and He will serve you. What a promise. Let's give the Lord a shout of praise. Just bow your heads for a moment. Let's pray together.
Father, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for your helpful, necessary, and impactful clarity that the words of, of Jesus brings to our lives. Lord, may we truly humble ourselves, knowing that you give grace to the humble, but you resist the proud. Father, we want to thank you for this time, and we pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work in us as your truth impacts the very core of who we are. We have heard it, we believe it, now may we apply it. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.